Well, welcome. This is, uh, it's just weird. It's just kind of strange to be in the Fellowship Hall, the now cafeteria of Amphra. But uh, again, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Thank you for your flexibility. You know, the thing that matters is that the church of Jesus can be together. And in these days, it's, it matters that we can be kind of cool, too, <laughs> a little bit. It's helpful, at least. You know, I said this last uh, time we were together. There's churches meeting all over the world without air conditioning, right? And so we ought to be a people willing to just be together and love the Lord. And it's a, it's a blessing. Uh, it's an extra blessing to be able to have this kind of good air conditioning. And we're hoping that we can get or that they can get the system fixed in the sanctuary as soon as possible. Uh, we're just trying, we're trying to communicate with them on that, but we're not there yet. So thank you for your flexibility allowing us to be in here. Um, for those of you that are, haven't seen it, it's a, it, it's a sharp looking space and we're excited about what God's doing here at the school. Uh, so I want to recap just a little bit. We're in the series in the book of Mark and uh, the last few weeks we've been talking about this, this thing we call the Olivet Discourse. Um, this is where Jesus sits down with four of his disciples and he begins to talk about kind of end times prophecy. Um, this is when he's speaking to his disciples, everything he's speaking about is future oriented. So less than 40 years from the moment Jesus is speaking with his disciples, uh, the first prophecy comes true, which is that the temple is knocked down and not a stone is left on top of another. And then I believe a couple of other events going forward from there and going forward from here. In other words, we're not there yet as to what's going to happen in the future, I believe. And I believe that's going to be the tribulation period, which I think will, uh, the tri- I believe the rapture will precede the tribulation period. And then after the tribulation period, uh, or during the tribulation period, of course, we'll see the Antichrist. And then at the end of that, we studied last Sunday in our um, city groups, the return of Jesus. And I just, even as I say that, my heart gets excited and happy and, and uh, hopefully we have a, a joyful outlook about that instead of a fearful one about the times we're in, right? That we can be excited and eager to what Jesus is going to do and when he's going to come as opposed to fear around the things that are going on in, uh, in the world today. This has been a long day. <laughs> Not today, but the day that Jesus is in. We're finally finishing uh, Wednesday. This has been a long day. It started um, back in chapter 11 with Jesus cursing a fig tree. And we, we've been here for weeks talking about uh, this, this long day of Wednesday. And Jesus is finally now ending out his day. And I, I got to say, he's done a lot. He's, he's done some confrontation. He's observed a widow. He's cursed the tree. He's left the temple for the last time that he would ever leave the temple. He sat on the Mount of Olives with these four disciples looking over that temple, prophesying of its destruction, and then talking about end time events. That's the Olivet Discourse that we've been talking about. And now he turns around, goes up the Mount of Olives to Bethany. It's not very far, but he gets up there for a time of celebration, an evening of celebration. And it's just a beautiful, have you ever been to a dinner with friends and you're just like, you just take a deep breath and you're enjoying your food and drink and you're just enjoying one another. I believe with all my heart that is what Wednesday night was like for Jesus for the most part. Um, but something is interesting that happens right as we get into our text. <clears throat> I want to bring your attention to it. And it's very interesting in, in, in the contrast. 
Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives with his four disciples, and he tells them about end times and all these things that are going on. But at the exact same time Jesus is spending time with these four men, there's another group of men, and they're doing something completely different. The contrast is insane. Like, here's Jesus and these uneducated common men. They were fishermen, right? They sit together discussing his return and all these different things. He is about to leave them with the responsibility and the mission of of changing the world. It will be the greatest movement in the entire history of the world. They will take the gospel of Jesus. They've been public with it, but they're going to go even more public with the gospel of Jesus, with the Spirit coming and empowering them. They're going to do so with humility and authenticity, and the Spirit is going to empower them. They're going to be able to do miracles. It's going to be an amazing thing because of their connection to the Lord. They're going to be on mission and relationship. It's not about a religion they're trying to set up. It's about change, a transformation. And yet, not far, literally inside the walls of that temple, at a place, Caiaphas' house, Caiaphas' house, there's a group of men. These are Pharisees and Sadducees. And the contrast is this. They're the most educated. They're the most studied They are the ones that people consider the religious leaders of the Jewish faith. And yet they meet in secret. Why? Because they're planning the torture and death of the very Messiah that they've been waiting on. Isn't that crazy? These two meetings taking place at the same time. They've been leading an apostate, works-based, false religion that they've added to Judaism. They have no relationship with God yet they claim to. And we've seen in our study in Mark how Jesus has kind of land-blasted them so many times for for what they've added to God's Word. He's called them serpents. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. He's, he's, He's not held back in any way. And yet they meet with no pause in their heart or spirit for a plan to murder. It's just a crazy reality of these two meetings happening at the same time. So look in your word with me. We're going to Mark 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 this morning, okay? Mark 14, verse 1 says, It was now two days before the Passover. So Wednesday, Passover is going to be Friday. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'll explain that in just a minute. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray this morning. 
Father God, we just pause just to seek you, just to plead with you, Lord, that by your spirit, you would lead us to all truth now. God, as we spend time in your word, as we focus on the beauty of this gift to us of your word, help what you intended for this audience that Mark is writing to, help it to be the same thing that we can learn today in our lives. God, help us to understand the power of worship and yet also the power of criticism. And Lord, let us be worshipers. Father, I pray with all of my heart that you would lead us to all truth, God. Your word says that your spirit will lead us to truth. And I pray that you would do that. I pray, God, that you would help me to get out of the way, that I would decrease and that you would increase in this time and that we would be obedient to whatever you would lead us to, Lord, individually, in our homes, in our families, in every possible way, God, that we would follow you and love you with all that we are, even as we see this woman has in this story. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This is, uh, like I said, still Wednesday, two days before Friday. And um, this is, um, well, Mark puts these two things together. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the reason he does that is because they, they kind of became, became conflated together, right? They're one right after another, and they come from the same story. Um, of course, you remember uh, Passover has to do with the Jews in, in uh, Egypt. And Moses tells the Jews that the death angel is going to come, and if, you, if you'll put over the doorpost of your home the blood of a spotless lamb then the, the death angel will pass over your home and your home won't be affected. But if you don't do that very thing, if you don't obey, if you don't follow that, that directive, then you will lose your firstborn son and your firstborn uh, livestock. And so th- this is what happens, and that becomes known as the Passover. Of course, it's also just uh, foreshadowing of Jesus being our ultimate right lamb sacrifice for us. And so we apply his blood over our lives. We'll talk a little bit about that. But what happens is the very next day they celebrate this thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what it commemorates is that when the Jews, after the Passover, the Jews had to get out of Egypt immediately and their bread couldn't expand. And so they take flattened bread, unleavened bread, and they get out of Egypt quickly. And that becomes now the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It happens the next day, and many people kind of put them together as Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's why Mark is explaining it this way. They are uh, interchangeable, if you will. There's four things I want us to look at this morning from our text, okay? The first one is this, God's timeline. Can I remind you of something? And I have to be reminded of it all the time myself. We are on His timeline. He is not on ours, I'll say it again because I'm thick-headed. We are on his timetable. He is not on ours. We need to remember that. And I think this is a beautiful text to show us that reality. I'm going to read just the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, notice that. (laughs) It was very important to them that their arrest and their evil plans don't happen during the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. 
Because there's so many people in Jerusalem and Jesus has amassed so much influence from people that he could walk into the temple and chase out money changers and nothing happened to him. He could go into the temple and teach thousands of people and the Pharisees have to stand to the side and just bite their upper lip. Who is this guy? Why does he think he has authority to teach this way? He's coming into our house. Isn't that funny? It was his house. And he showed them. But they're, they're angry with him, and they know that if they attack Jesus, if they arrest Jesus, that there's so much influence that he has that the people literally could have an uproar, an uprising, and attack them. And so they're, they're, they don't want that to happen. I think it's interesting and sad that obviously in this moment, their only concern is politics. You see that? There's zero concern about right and wrong. There's zero concern about we're about to kill an innocent man. No concern there. Just are we going to get in trouble for this? You see that? And it saddens me that our political system is not much different. It feels to me like politics and power seems at times all to matter and right and wrong is lost. Sad. Pray for our country in these days. But what I want you to see is that nothing can diminish God's timeline. Because we're on his timeline, he's not on ours, right? God designed this timeline of the life and death of his son before time began. Nothing could set it aside. Nothing could move it or alter it. Not even the plans of these men. I like the way Peter describes it in Acts 2.23 when he's preaching um, at Pentecost, after the Spirit has empowered him in this amazing message, then Peter preaches, verse 23, this Jesus, he's preaching to these Jew- Jews at Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the def- definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of a lawless man. What he's saying is, this was God's plan. He allowed you to do it, but it was his plan. God's plan will not be diverted. These men did not want to upset the people or risk an uproar, but there was nothing they could do to divert the timeline and the plan, the sovereign plan of God, and there's nothing you can do to divert it either. Look at the next thing I want to show you in verse 3, and this is extravagant worship. This is one of my favorite stories. I love love this story. Let's read verse 3. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining, this is kind of their, what they would do at these tables. I'm not sure how you, you probably got stuff all over you, right? But you're leaned up on each other. It just shows relationship and care and and carefree and and love and, and joy and celebration. He's reclining at the table and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, again, this is one of my favorite stories. I've studied it quite a bit. It's, it's got a few interesting elements that I want to just bring out. Not the main point of the story, but I think they're interesting. And that is, all the Gospels refer to a story like this. Three of the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, refer, I believe, to this story. Luke chapter 7 refers to another story of a woman who does a very similar thing in the home of a man by the name of Simon. It's just very, very similar. I'm not completely convinced it's not the same story, but uh, most theologians that I've read 
believe this is, these are two separate stories that just happen to be very similar. I don't know. But what's interesting is, again, and I, we've talked about this, parallel Gospels give us more information. So as you study the Word, the, these four Gospels give four snapshots of different men. God uses all their, their experiences and views and, and personalities. He writes through them. But we see different story elements that, that are important. So look with me. Matthew and Mark both mention that this story happens uh, in, a, in a home of a leper by the name of Simon. Now listen, are you going to go to the dinner party at the leper's house? Not if he has leprosy. So what does that mean? Jesus healed the man. It doesn't say that, but it's inferred, right? Because you don't go to the home of a leper unless... He doesn't have leprosy, which what kind of environment would that be for you if it was your home and you had leprosy and were dying and had been removed from your family and now you're not and now you're going to throw a party? Why? Because you're not dying and you're with your family and the very man who healed your body is with you. Man, can you imagine that environment? Oh yeah, there's some other people there we're going to get to as well that have reason to be excited and joyous as well. But they're in the home of, of this former leper, I believe, by the name of Simon. And then the Gospel of John gives us a few more details. Look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Remember that? So they gave a, a dinner for him there. Martha served which she loves to do, right? And Lazarus was one of those uh, reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. So now we have some more details on, on what we're looking at here in the story. The first thing, if you notice, is John says this happens on Saturday, six days before Passover. But Mark, and if you're looking in our story of Mark, Mark doesn't actually say this happens uh, two days before Saturday. He says that the, the, the meeting of the Pharisees happens two days before. So a lot of theologians believe that what's happening here is that Mark is sort of, this is sort of a flashback to that Saturday. But Mark in his writing, what he's doing, and it's beautiful and really creative writing, is he's, he's showing the juxtaposition of a woman full of worship and a man full of critique and judgment. He's putting them against one another to show kind of which heart to have and which one Jesus is more pleased with. And he does so in this moment in his story. So those are just some of the details that I want to get to. We're going to get to more here in just a second. John tells us that uh, this person who comes to do this is Mary, right? This is, Mar this is Martha and Lazarus's sister. Uh, again, does she have reason to be celebratory? He's, Jesus saved her brother. He raised her brother from the dead. And so she comes with this ointment. Uh, a, a Roman pound is, in, in, our, in our estimation, is 12 ounces. So think of a can of Coke. That's how much ointment we're talking about. But it says it's pure nard, which means it's undiluted. Therefore, it's more expensive, more valuable. This stuff comes from a plant in northern India. And so you can imagine how much it would cost to export it from northern India all the way uh, to the Holy Land. 
very, very much. In fact, um, these stories give us the value of this ointment. It's worth over 300 denarii. You might remember when we were talking about the woman um, who gives the offering, the widow and the widow's mite. Remember she gave what? She gave one denarius, right? And we said that one denarius is one day's labor for a normal day worker, right? For just the normal person's salary, one denarius. So this is 300 denarius. There's 365 days in a year. It's almost a year's worth of salary. I was just looked up, just for interest, I put up, uh, what's the average salary in America? And it said $59,000 a year. And I said, well, that doesn't sound like Arkansas. So I put it in Arkansas. What's the average salary in Arkansas? And it said 39 something. So just, just imagine, say, say I had a bottle of something that's worth $35,000. The, the point is to get your perspective and what you understand a value to be. $30,000, $35,000 worth of something, and she comes to offer this beautiful moment of worship. I love the fact that she doesn't measure this very valuable liquid. Unbelievably valuable, but she doesn't measure it. You know, if I had something, I'd be like, carrying it like this. If you see me carrying my guitars, that's usually the way I carry my guitars, and they're not worth anywhere close to that. She doesn't carry it in like, Draw, oh, you're just a drop here. That's enough for your feet, pal. That's good, right? Just a little bit on your head. No. She's extravagant. Almost careless. In fact, she doesn't just open the flask. What does she do with it? She breaks it. That means it won't go back together. Her intent is to unload all that she has, all of her value onto Jesus' head and feet. She doesn't hold back. I, we were part of a church in Nashville, and um, as a worship leader and pastor, we're, you're always trying to think of different ideas and things to come up with for examples. And we were doing a service, and I think we were, I don't even remember exactly what the theme was, but I think we were talking about the overflowing, the abundant love of Jesus or something. And the pastor decided he was going to get a, a bottle of wine, and he put it on a stool, just like that one over there, and we, were, we had a stage, so you really couldn't see the bottom that well of the stage. But we had it prepared for what was going to happen. And he had a, a wine glass, and he started pouring the wine into the wine glass very slowly. And he's just talking about the love of Jesus. And, of course, everybody's, nobody's paying attention to him. Everybody's like zoned in to the wine glass. And he's just slowly pouring the wine into the wine glass. It begins to fill the glass, fill the glass, and it gets to the top. And you can feel like, the, like it, it's going to be okay, but everybody's freaking out a little bit, you know. And he just keeps going and keeps talking. And the wine begins to overflow that cup down the legs until every drop of that wine has been poured out into that glass and over. And the point was um, interestingly disturbing because it was, it was overflow. It was abundance. There was no hesitation. And we were trying to explain this is the love of Jesus more than you'll ever need, more than you can comprehend, flowing over your life of value that you cannot understand. And that's exactly what this woman has done. She broke the flask and poured it out with abandon as a sign of her worship. Matthew and Mark both say that she poured the oil in his head. John says she also poured it on his, his feet, and then she dried his feet, ladies, 
with her long hair. What an unbelievable act of worship. Phenomenal. She's willing, I want to show you a couple of things I think about this, what she's done here. Number one, she's willing to be seen in public doing an extravagant, in some ways undignified aspect of worship. This wasn't a normal thing. This, there would have been gasps in the room. There would have been people going, this was a spectacle, if you will. She was not worried about what people think of her worship. She didn't consider, oh, what's he, I better know, well, if he thinks, no. She, she came forward and worshiped with her whole heart, not worried about anybody else. She's willing to value Jesus so much that she liberally pours out all of this very expensive ointment on his hands and feet, which is part of the lesson is this is a huge financial sacrifice. Huge. Even if she was very wealthy, and they might have been. This is the home, or at least the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, was the home where Jesus and his disciples stayed often. They would go into Jerusalem and come back to Bethany. They'd go into Jerusalem and come back to Bethany. They would stay at their home, which means it probably was a very large home, enough to, to at least have, you know, have all these, all these 12, 13 men around their home. So even if they're very wealthy, it's still this outrageous act of sacrifice. She's also willing to bow at his feet and clean his feet with her hair. You know, I was thinking about this, and I thought about what Paul said about a woman's hair in 1 Corinthians 11. What what does Paul call a woman's long hair in 1 Corinthians 11, somebody? Her what? Her glory. Isn't that interesting? What what Mary is, is showing us and modeling for us is that the very best that she has she's willing to take and put it under the feet of Jesus. Her glory. All that she has. Everything that's important to her. Her very self-worth and dignity. is nothing. I put it under your feet. It just is a breathless act of worship. Incredible. She's willing to be judged and ridiculed for this extravagance in her worship. Verse 4, look. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. It's just a crazy moment, this joyous moment filled with thanksgiving. You you raised my brother from the dead and and the, the leper providing a wonderful meal and just this joy in this atmosphere. And then Mary just can't stand it. I've I've got to show all my worship. And I'm going to go get that thing that's the most valuable thing in all my life. And I'm going to pour it out on my Savior because I don't care about anything else in the future. Or I just, I want to honor Him with all that I am and all that I have. And then she brings this worship. And then all of a sudden, there are some, the text says, that begin to speak to themselves. Right? She gives extravagant worship, but others only have critical judgment. I want you to notice something. A critical spirit, it always starts with you, with your spirit, with yourself. Look what it says right here. There were some who said to themselves, there were some who said to who? Themselves. It starts 
in your mind. It starts in your heart. It starts under your breath. And by the way, it should stop there. Okay? It starts here, but it should stop there. But all of us are guilty at times of it not stopping there. And then what happens, right? By the way, there's several times in the ministry of Jesus where people (laughs) do this, and maybe even without saying a word, Jesus speaks to it, right? He calls them out because they're thinking it, or they've said it to themselves in a way where nobody can hear it. It's just like Jesus speaks to what they're thinking, what their hearts, what's on their heart. They felt like Mary had wasted that money. Wasn't theirs to make a, a decision about it. It was hers. But I want, to, I want you to notice something here. The greater sin, greater than the fact that they thought the money was wasted, is that they thought worshiping Jesus was a waste. You see the two? Yeah, there's money. But there's the Savior. They weren't focused on the Savior. They were focused on this money. She saw the Savior worthy of all that she had, all of her surrender in worship, and all they could do was consider the money. They didn't see the beauty of this moment, the joy of this celebration, this worshipful time. And so they judge her heart, and in doing so, they begin to reveal the lack of love in their own. The Gospel of John gives us, again, a little bit more specific information. Look at John 12, 4. John 12, 4 says, but Judas Iscariot, we know that name, right? One of his disciples, he was, uh, who was about to betray him, just in case we forgot, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of this money bag, he used, uh, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we now know that it wasn't just some, Mark says some, John says it was Judas. But watch what happens when when it's critical spirit and judgment starts in us. Watch what happens. It goes to other people. Matthew 26, 8 says, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? So what started with Judas and a wrong spirit now has infected the disciples. Friends, can I tell you something? A critical spirit, a wrong heart can be contagious. It really can. And we have to be so careful. We have to be so careful when we get into this heart or attitude of a critical nature. So John's text tells us why Judas was so critical. (laughs) Look, he says, It wasn't because he cared about the poor. I think this is so interesting. Remember, Judas goes, we could have given that to the poor. Oh, man, come on. There's so many poor who need that. Look over there. It's the poor. Was it the poor? It wasn't the poor at all. John said it wasn't because he cared about the poor. It's because he was a thief. And having uh, charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas wanted the opportunity for the money that that represented. He didn't care about the poor. I think what happens, I'll say in my life, when I have a critical spirit, and I do at times, 
is it can come from a place of sin in my life. It can come from a place of unconfessed, unresolved sin. And I think that's what we're seeing in Judas's heart. He's not dealing with the fact that he's a thief. And what I think is interesting, sometimes when we don't deal with sin in our own lives and brokenness in our own lives and turns into critical spirit, then we can not only be contagious with it, but we can point to stuff that it, that it has nothing to do with. Religious things even. I just think this is so interesting. I just want you to notice this. We have to be so careful. The issue was the sin in his life, and yet he points to the poor. He deflected. The poor need that. What about the poor? I don't know how many times I've heard from different people, look over there, this, dot, 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 that thing, and I'm going, what? what? And I can't understand it. I can't make sense of it because it probably doesn't have to do with a thing. It has to do with something else. We have to just be careful that we deal with our own sin and struggles and humanity the way that God would have us deal with them. So the disciples, I'm frustrated with these disciples because they love Mary, right? They spend time with Mary. She, she feeds them. They, they, they give them wonderful things and a place to stay. And the disciples should have recognized her heart because can I tell you something? Every time we see Mary, this Mary in scripture, she's at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Every single time. She's a worshiper, consistent one at the feet of Jesus. They should know her heart. They should give her the benefit of the doubt. But instead, they jump to the conclusion that what she's doing is a waste instead of worship. Watch what happens in verse 6. Jesus here is now going to protect her and make a promise. Verse 6 says, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before, uh, beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Jesus in this moment makes it clear who's in the right, doesn't he? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, if there's any guessing, wonder, what, how, where's Jesus in this matter? Oh, he makes it clear. And you ever get that sense of, oh, crud, I shouldn't have done that. Oh. Oh, okay, I see the worship thing now. Okay, yeah, I get it. Okay, I, right? Jesus makes it so clear that she's in the right. And this is not the first time he's taken up for her, right? Remember when Martha says, Mary, can you help me in the kitchen? I, I need some help in the kitchen. And Mary's just spending time with Jesus. And Jesus stands up for Mary then and says, well, Martha. Mary's doing the right thing. She's doing the right thing. She's spending time with me. So this is not the first time that uh, Jesus has taken up for Mary and shown the value that he wants us to have of spending time with him, worshiping him from our whole hearts. Sadly, Judas and the disciples what, what they call wasteful, Jesus calls beautiful. And just sometimes, can I just tell you, sometimes we just get it wrong. Can I just start the day or saying, uh, often it's me. 
I get a lot of stuff wrong. I'm sorry. I make a lot of mistakes. I need your grace. I do. Forgive me. But we all need that for each other, okay? We, we make mistakes. Here, these are good men who make mistakes. They, they, they need God's grace. They made a mistake. We need to own those and learn from them. Jesus says, just a quick point on this. Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. I think the, the, the thing to notice here is that the priority here in our lives over social justice is personal worship. Just, just a quick little side note. We need to care for the poor. We need to help those in need. Oh, we so need to do it. But we have to do that out of a personal relationship with Jesus as a secondary thing, not as a primary thing. Because when it becomes primary or it's primary over a relationship, then all of a sudden Matthew 7 happens where Jesus says, oh, you did all those things. Didn't we feed the poor? Didn't we do those things? And he says, I never knew you. The priority in our lives as believers is to love Jesus, to be worshipers of Jesus. And out of the reality of who we are, our identity in him, now we serve. That is the priority. That is the order. We can't get that backwards, friends. So Jesus makes this comment that is interesting, that Mary has more awareness to his coming death than even the disciples. Do you notice this? Women, can I just say something? This is not in my notes. I I just got to apologize. How often you get it right and we get it wrong. And the room falls silent. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, lady. A little amen there. We, We get it wrong a lot. And I'm so thankful for godly women who are sensitive to the Spirit, leading women in the church. I'm so grateful for leading women in the church who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, who aren't afraid to worship Jesus because she teaches the disciples something in this moment. Very significant. This is not a small moment that I want you to see. Jesus says, she has done what she could. She anoints his body for burial, he says. See, women in that day couldn't do much. They, they were treated poorly. They were, they were less than second-class citizens. She couldn't do anything to keep the persecution or the pain or the torture or all the things coming at Jesus. She couldn't do anything about it. She couldn't convince Jesus to not go into Jerusalem and go to the cross. She couldn't do that. But she could listen to him. She could hear his teaching that he he spoke three times that he was going to go to the cross, right? And die. She actually heard that. She actually knew that his death was imminent. And so she took this moment to worship him and to show the value that she has of him to the whole world. And then what does Jesus do? He establishes her and this act of worship as one that will be remembered always. And not just remembered, but watch this, connected to the proclamation of the gospel. Really spend time on that. What is it about this story of worship that Jesus would say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, her story will be told? Isn't that interesting? And I think what's being spoken here, what Jesus is trying to say is, when you know Jesus, when you get an understanding of the gospel, a true understanding in your heart, God has transformed your life and you know that you deserve hell and nothing less. 
Nothing will be more important than Jesus. You'll be willing to worship. You'll be willing to pour out your life, your worship, all that you have, all that you are. It's most important. That's what the grace of God does in someone's life when they truly get it. And friends, this story shows us she gets it. Do we hold Jesus in that high esteem? In that same reference, do we worship Him that authentically? Do we value Him above all that we have or what others think of us? I pray that we can learn too. Before we go, I want to just mention a couple of takeaways here. Number one, I'm mentioning it again, we're on His timeline, He's not on ours. What is going on in your life that you keep rushing God with? Can I just tell you, you need to learn to rest in the sovereignty of God. He's good. He loves you. If you've been praying, listen, if you've been praying, you've been seeking Him, you love Him, He's heard you. Even when it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, and I've felt like that so many times. Rest in the sovereignty of God. But work out of a, a place of love and joy. When we, um, tell you this quick story, we we moving into our first home, and I've told you this story before, but we had to move very quickly, and some guys came to help us that I didn't want to have help us. I wanted to hire somebody, and I didn't want anybody to do too much for me. That whole thing, Dad was there. And I remember... I was so grateful for them being there that I wanted to handle all the heavy stuff. And so I'm, we lived on the second floor, and I wanted to be the one going down the stairs with the couch, that guy, right? I wanted to be the one having to do the hold it up. I, I wanted to do all the things. Listen, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, when you understand the gospel, you want to do the heavy lifting. Not because you have to to be saved, but because you've been saved. And out of that grace, you say, Lord, what can I do? Do you need me in the children's ministry, God? Let me sign up. Do you mean to give more? Do you mean to help now? Do you need me to give grace? Lord, help me. I'll do that. What do I need to do? Because you've done more for me than I could ever explain to anyone. I want to help. I want to love. I want to be who you want me to be. That is an understanding of the gospel. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you a worshiper or are you a worrier? What is, and I'm not talking about do you sing well here. Okay. I'm not talking about do you sing loudly. What I'm asking is, is your life lived as worship for an audience of one? Or are you at times consumed with critical judgments and narratives? You know what narratives can be? That's when you begin to determine what's already happened, even though you don't know if it's happened or not. Man, I've done that. And my wife often goes, do you know that that's what happened? I'm like, Probably. Mm. Isn't that what the disciples did? They, they rushed to a judgment and a narrative that may or may not be true of other people. Friends, we should worship without worry of anyone else's approval. We should worship, we should live a life of worship where we pour out our lives, we pour out our hearts, we pour out our souls before a good, good Father who loves us so very, very much. We should do it with abandon, the way she did with that oil. 
I love the scene. <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes in Forrest Gump. You know, you gotta love Forrest Gump. And he's driving his shrimp boat and Lieutenant Dan is on the dock and he's driving, he looks over, hey, Lieutenant Dan! And forgets the boat, jumps towards Lieutenant Dan into the, and the boat goes careening into the dock. You know, you've seen that part? That's a good example of a life in Jesus because our life is the boat. And if Jesus is over there, forget, forget the boat. Just go to Jesus. That sounds crazy. Kind of sounds like crazy. Somebody who would pour out all of her savings on the master. Just, Lord, I, I don't want to hold anything back. I want to pour my life out before you, everything. I want to jump all in, everything, all of my life. I, I give you a blank check with the rest of my life, Jesus. Do you bring your best? Do you give your best to the Lord? Your time, your resources, your gifts? Or is there some sort of personal sin that is keeping you from growth in Jesus? Keeping you from a relationship that is deepening in Him. Instead, it causes you to move towards judgment or critical thoughts. Do you think worship is a waste. Do you ever sit here and go, oh, we got to do that bridge again? Can't we do that kind of song? Can it be this? Can it be that? It's easy, friends. We all do it. But worship is not waste. And the sad reality is, if you struggle with thinking worship is a waste, I challenge you to look at your heart because it may reveal what you think of the Savior. In the same way the disciples, they'd made a judgment of Mary, but really it was a judgment of their worth of Jesus. Don't let our sin lead to critical judgment of other people because then that can influence other people. Don't be a catalyst for negativity. And lastly, don't be afraid to worship. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I, I, I know in my worship journey, I can remember in that sanctuary the first time um, I really felt like I, I didn't just sing a song, I worshiped. I'll never forget uh, our, our music pastor said, cross the aisles, and everybody went, <gasps> what? You know? And we crossed the aisles and we held hands. And then we started singing the song and the hands kind of went up and we started singing like this. And I remember closing my eyes and just singing to the Lord. And it's the, I think it's the first moment I've worshipped and I didn't just sing a song. But it was risky. Yeah, it was crazy. I don't really know her. Okay, I'm going to hold her hand. I remember the first time the Lord moving in my heart in such a way and I just, I just want to, <laughs> I want a T-Rex worship. You know, I just, I want to worship with all that I am, but I'm not, I didn't, I wasn't raised raising my hands. And yet the word of God says to. And, and a whole journey of learning how to not care, except worship with all my heart. Not to get in front of anybody, not to try and say I'm holier than thou or more, whatever. Just to not think through those thoughts, but just to say, Lord Jesus, you are my all in all. And I love you.
What's your alabaster flask today? What is it that you value so much that you're, you're holding on to it and you're not willing to let it go? Can I just encourage you to give it to Jesus? Just lay it before him. There's nothing in our lives that should be more valuable than him. That's called an idol. Pray with me this morning. Father, I love this story, God, and I, I love it because I'm, I'm so encouraged by the beautiful worship of this woman. So encouraged by her bravery. I'm encouraged by her awareness of the timeliness of this moment. I'm so encouraged by her willingness to sacrifice so much. And it wasn't just a financial sacrifice. She lays on the ground to clean your feet, Lord Jesus, with her hair, her glory. To say, there's nothing I have as worthy as you. And I lay it all down. God, I pray that you would forgive me of the moments where I think I'm more valuable than, than you or my plans or my timeline or anything in my life, God, that I won't surrender to you. Lord Jesus, would you help me to lay it all down? Would you help me to respect and love and honor you in such a way that I would never consider worship a waste, but that I would value the time I have with you, even in this moment? as we sing this next song, as we just take a few minutes, we're just a few minutes before we leave here. And as we have just a couple of minutes before we leave, God, I pray that you would help us to just take, just take a moment and say, Lord, what is it in my life that I need your spirit to just shine a light on? Maybe I've missed it. Maybe I've overlooked it. But maybe it has more value in my life than I, than I need to give it. And I need to lay it down. I need to pour it at your feet. Or maybe I need to learn to worship God. I'm, maybe I, I'm afraid to worship. I'm afraid to sing out. I don't trust my voice. Or I, I'm afraid to look silly with my hands in the air or my heart open in some way. Lord, forgive us and help us just to focus totally on you, Jesus. Just to love you with all that we are and all that we have. Because there is none more valuable than you. And God, forgive us where we make judgments. Forgive me of creating narratives, feeling certain ways, Lord. May I be grace-giving, loving, giving a benefit of the doubt, Lord, to help us to be that kind of body, that kind of family, those kind of believers. We're more focused on you, loving you, worshiping you than anything else. God, in this moment, would you move in our hearts and draw us to know you more and give us courage to be obedient to whatever you lead us to, even now, in this time of worship. In your precious name, amen.